Welcome to the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast, where we're joined by your hosts, Tanya Gomez and Paul Bryan. In each episode, we'll be sharing valuable insights and tips to help you turn your NDIS business into a profitable venture. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your business to the next level, you've come to the right place. Let's stop surviving and start thriving. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast. Really excited today because we've got something fantastic happening. I'm going to be interviewing Tanya today. Yes. Welcome, Paul. Hi. How are you going? Really well, thank you. And I really enjoyed uh, recording our last podcast and I think there's going to be so much value for providers in the information that we're going to go over over the next few episodes. So if you haven't already please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're on and we're going to get into today. Wonderful. I'm really excited. So what I'd love to do, Tanya, is just get a bit of a more of a background on uh, what you do as a compliance auditor and consultant and how you help businesses and why don't you just tell us what you do? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I operate Tanya Gomez Consulting and we make NDIS compliance and quality uh, easy. Um, so I work as an NDIS auditor uh, and I use what I learn as an auditor to help my clients really understand how to comply. I really believe that um, NDIS providers, at least 99.9% of NDIS providers, really want to do a good job. They just really don't know how to do that. Yeah. There's, there's not a book that you can buy that says a good provider does these things. And so I try to be their guide, their coach, their mentor, and help them see compliance as the foundation of their business success so that they can, they can grow, grow upon that um, and use compliance as, you know, compliance being their policies, their procedures, their business operations as a, a way to scale their business, to create really clear processes so their staff know what to do. Uh, and all of this is in aid of delivering the best quality care they can to participants in a way that suits their participants. And really that's what the NDS practice standards are all about. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I do. I spend my days auditing providers, guiding, coaching, mentoring providers, uh, and consulting to them around things to do with quality and compliance. But also, it really crosses over into business advisory because, for me at least, quality and compliance and business success are all linked as one. It's one of the yeah. the ingredients you need for a successful, compliant, and high quality business. Awesome. Could you give us a bit of an overview for those that maybe aren't registered yet or they're looking into it, or even those that are but didn't really understand the process, what is uh, compliance and the idea of being registered? Yeah, so the NGS registration process has a few key components. This, there is an application process, there's an audit process, and then there's a bit of a wait, uh, awaiting approval status. And then once all of those things are done, you become registered as an NGS provider. Um, so I'm one of the co-founders of uh, Provider Plus. I'm no longer involved with Provider Plus, but uh, as the co-founder and I was a COO for many years, um, we registered over 4,000 NDRS providers, 53% wow. um, market share under my leadership. And so I've been through this process more than most. Mm -hmm. And so I intimately understand the application process from all angles. I've been through it as a provider. I've registered a few businesses myself and sat in audits as a provider. Yep. I've been through it 
with providers holding their hand as a consultant, and I've been through it as an auditor a couple of hundreds of times. Um, so yeah, I intimately understand it and I understand it from all angles, which I think makes me um, a little bit unique, but also means that I can see it from all different angles and um, help from all different perspectives. Yeah, fantastic. You've definitely had a bit of experience in that space. Just a and, little. Uh, and having, it, having that different angles of perspective must really make it a lot simpler for you to see the big picture. Yeah, to see the big picture and not to stress so much about if any little piece doesn't work because I understand where in the process it fits and if that doesn't go well, what happens up the chain and what the real ramifications are. I've seen some really scary things um, of when it's gone really bad, but I've also seen lots of times that it's gone much better than the person expected. Um, really scary, horrible audits are few and far between, at least from my perspective. Um, But I think that it's really about being prepared and understanding. And when you know more, you do better. So if I can help people to understand the process, it becomes a less stressful, more they can anticipate what's going to happen and they can prepare better. And so the whole experience becomes a more positive one. That's brilliant. Look, with that experience, could you tell us a bit about the application process, what to expect, what it looks like? Yeah, so the application process is done through the NJS Commission's website. So you go onto the website, you need to set up a ProDare account, which is a provided digital access account first. And that's similar to a MyGov account. Everyone has one if they want to operate with the government and you know, lodge claims through a government department. You do the same if you're an allied health person lodging through Medicare, as an example. So you set up Proda first, um, you go through the portal and there's a a whole lot of questions. Um, As part of this, the first time people usually ask for help is when they see what is called the self-assessment answers. And this is a 2,000 word uh, blurb against every quality indicator under every standard. So if you're a certified provider, there's 24 standards. That, let's say, is about 150 quality indicators you're being assessed against, and you need to write 2,000 words for each of those on how you comply. So self-assessment answers is the first part. Um, You then do a declaration of suitability, things like have you been bankrupt, et cetera. You answer a whole lot of questions about what your business will provide, what registration areas, where you're located, et cetera. Um, and when you've done that, that you know, uh, at, a, at a service that does registrations, that's quite a quick process. Um, and once you have submitted that, automatically you get what's called a scope of audit form. And the scope of audit form is is automatically populated. No one looks at it at the NJS Commission. It's automatically populated. You take that scope of audit and that becomes what the auditors give you a quote based on. So they know if you're a verified provider or a certified provider, they know what modules you need to be assessed against. Um, And then based on that, they can figure out how many audit days and therefore what they're going to charge you. Yeah, right. That seems like a very straightforward process. It does seem very straightforward. <laughs> yes, it does. It's like, yeah, I, I have a number of people who I've spoken to who, who work in, you know, the NJS Commission and then and they are baffled that there are consultants that do this. Yeah. So yes, on paper, it is just three steps. You log in, you fill out the answers, you press submit, kind of like, you know, any kind of government process. Um, but it's getting those answers right and understanding, you know, when yes. you're choosing registration groups, there's 36 registration groups. How do you know? And the, the namings don't really make sense. How do you know that SIL, if you want to be a support independent living provider and operate SIL houses, there's nowhere to tell you that that is registration group called daily living um, in a shared group environment, like double one five. How would you compute the two? 
So really, as a consultant, I love working with people when they're choosing their registration areas because I can help them understand what that means Um, because it's different language than what's in the participant's plan. They don't use the same language. Of course not. No, it's too easy, right? Um, So it's that translation piece. I often say as an NDIS auditor and as a consultant, I'm translating all the time. I'm translating for what the the practices you do in your business against the standards. And I'm also translating between the participant-facing language that the NDIA writes and the provider language that the commission writes because there isn't many similarities. And so you need to do that transition, that translation so that you're speaking the same language and understand what it is you're applying for. And I must say that most people who fail at audit and have a horrible audit time, they have applied for registration groups that they can't demonstrate compliance for because Mm. they're not suitable. They haven't got the experience. They don't even understand what they're applying for. And even when I work with people who have been operating three, four, five years, you sit down and you look at their scope and you're like, you've got you know, 34 out of 36 registration groups. This is meaning that your audit process is 10 times longer, therefore more expensive than it needs to be. Let's just apply for what you actually want to deliver in the next 18 months. And you can always change your mind and add things on at your midterm order in 18 months' time. Let's not go ahead with 35 registration groups just because you can. Let's be really selective about what you want to deliver, who is your client base, and let's align those registration choices so that they're going to work in your business and not just create a whole lot of additional paperwork for you. I, I think you definitely hit the nail on the head there with, you know, people applying for all parts of it creating a lot of undue stress, but also it means they're really not understanding who they're really providing a service for and what services they really are passionate and equipped to deliver. Yes. Yeah, you you don't want to be a jack of all trades. You yeah. really want to specialise. And so I often talk to people around choosing your participants first, even if you don't know who they are. I, I find a lot of uh, providers are setting up with a specific person in mind, whether it's their a, a cousin, a friend, a, a loved one, a child, a husband, that they're setting up this service to support. Um, and that often really helps them go, okay, I want to work with people who are this age in this location with these type of needs. And once you know that, you can then retrofit what you what you want to, what services you're providing, and then make the compliance fit that. If you start with choosing registration groups for the sake of it and then trying to fit your business around it, it's the tail wagging the dog. Absolutely. Look, let's discuss that big scary word, audit. What yes. does the audit process really look like? Yeah, so there's two types of NGRS provider. There's a verified provider, which is seen as a low risk provider, and there's a certified provider. And a certified provider are the type of providers that you would imagine. They're disability support workers, they're people delivering supports. So the process is actually quite different for both of them. Um, a, a verified provider is only assessed against four standards. Uh, they, uh, their auditors are only given half an audit day and the audits are always remote. And so a verified provider would be people like allied health professionals, cleaners, gardeners, plan managers, um, community nurses, and they're seen as lower risk for two reasons. Either their business is ancillary to the NGIS. So as an example, I registered hundreds of chemists. And so a chemist is ancillary because, yes, they work with people with disability, but they work with the general public and a percentage of their clients have a disability simply because they work with everybody. Same as cleaners or gardeners. And so they're seen as low risk because it's the the supports that they're providing aren't directly disability supports. Um, And they also want to have an easier time so that they don't not become a provider. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, The second reason someone's verified is that they have another professional body membership. So Allied Health is a great example. Allied Health could work predominantly with people with disability, but they might also work under Medicare and work under workers' comp and a few other things. Um, But they have another professional body. So if you're a speech pathologist, you're a member of SPA. If you're an OT, you're a member of OT Australia. If you're a nurse, you've got APRA. And so they're seen as uh, lower risk because there's other requirements um, and you're also qualified in in that space. So allied health professionals have between four and six or 10 years of of study in that area. So that that reduces the risk of harm to people with disability, the community, their staff. Um, so a verified provider will have an off-site audit every three years. And so it's quite a simple, quick process. Uh, in the policies uh, for verified, you'd see four policies. So you'd get four pieces of paper. A certified provider is black and white, night and day. It's very different. Certified providers are assessed against, it starts at 24 standards and it goes up to hundreds of standards if you add other modules to that. Um, So a certified provider are the businesses you would think are disability support businesses. You're talking about um, uh, group activities, participate in the community where you're taking them out to do shopping and, and, you know, go to church and those type of activities and disability support work in general, sill houses, all of that falls under um, certified and also being a support coordinator. So all of that are disability specific supports. And so there's 24 standards that they meet. Um... And then there's additional modules. So there's modules 1, 2, 2A3, 3A4 and 5. And those modules are for specialised people. So I would never recommend anyone does a specialist module unless they are actually in that space and that's their business. So module 1 is high intensity daily personal activities and that's complex nursing care. So peg feeding, um, uh, bowel care, um, enteral feeding, all of that comes under complex nursing care. And you would only do that if you're a registered nurse and you know what you're doing. Yes. Uh, module two is specialist behavior support. And that is the development of a behavior support plan. And you'd be a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and you'd be working with the most complex people outside of the NDRS registration. You, every single behavior support practitioner needs to be registered themselves every 12 months. And so it's that's the most highly regulated space and you would not do that unless that is what you do. Um, module three is early childhood support. So that's providing usually um, allied health services to under seven-year-olds. And so the reason for the additional standards, there's 14 standards in module three, is because working with children, there's a whole lot of other uh, requirements like making sure that they're safe and protected. There's additional things that you need to do there. Uh, Module four is specialist support coordination. So that isn't the same as just normal support coordination. That is a temporary support for complex uh, clients. Uh, And as a result, there needs to be more more training and more qualifications and more understanding of complex needs to deliver that service. Um, And module five is specialist disability accommodation, which is the bricks and mortar building of an SDA house. And you wouldn't do that unless you're an engineer, a builder, an architect. Um, And so... Once you know if you're certified or verified and what modules you have, that'll really outline what your audit process is. Um, A certified audit has two stages, a stage one and a stage two. A stage one is a document review and is done off-site. A stage two is an on-site audit where an auditor will come to you on-site and look at your practices. Um, And that can be anywhere from two days till the longest audit that I've done is 15 days. Um, And... Uh, a stage two also includes interviewing participants and interviewing staff. So it's quite yes. a quite a big process. 
Um, once the audit is done, um, you've got your stage one and stage two, uh, you'll get your audit report usually a week after your audit. And then the auditor has to do all of their work on the portal, submit it to the NJS Commission. It goes through a technical review process inside the auditing body. Um, but if you have any non-conformances, you know at your closing meeting. So at your closing meeting, the auditor needs to tell you if you have not conformed in any of the standards, um, and then you have to do a corrective action plan. Um, and if you have a minor non-conformance, you've got 18 months to close that out. And if you have a major, you need to go to another audit within 90 days called a corrective closeout audit. Um, and that's that's a high level outline of the, the audit process for certified and verified. Yeah, right. Like there's a lot in there that... Um you know, if, if you didn't have someone helping you through that process, you would get so confused and probably end up doing way too much that was completely unnecessary. Yeah, absolutely. Way too much of the wrong things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Focusing only on, you know, some some people, uh, your midterm audit, which is, so once you're approved as a certified provider, you have an audit every 18 months. Mm. Verified is every three years, but certified, yeah, certified is every 18 months. So you, you are forever in audit cycle. And I find at your midterm audit, your first audit really focuses on your policies and procedures and making sure that you've got what you need because it's your first audit. So people go into their midterm audit preparing the same way they did for their first audit. And the audit scope is so different. Yeah. They're only looking at eight standards at your midterm audit and it's all around governance, governance and operational yep. management. So they're not looking at they're not looking at half of your business and people just prepare for the wrong things. And then it becomes stressful and they feel like they've spent months working on audit prep, but they've been focusing on the complete wrong things. <laughs> and when the auditor gets there, they're not able to talk about governance at all because they've been focusing on their paperwork around participants. Yes. And so, yeah, you really knowing what each, the intention and the scope of each audit is so important to make sure you're not wasting a whole lot of your time and therefore your money. Absolutely. Look, I'd love to chat about the next phase, which is really where maybe a lot of our listeners are right now, because it is a long time sometimes, is awaiting approval. Yeah. So um, once the auditor has done their part and they've recommended the provider in the portal, it is a long wait. So from when I submit an audit report to a client, which is I try to do it a week after closing meeting, um, the technical review process inside the the auditing body can take between four and eight weeks. And that's for the auditing body to go through their checks and balances to make sure the audit report is good enough for the commission. And they have to do that because if they don't, then the commission just rejects the reports and we all start back at the beginning and it takes more time. Um, and the auditing bodies actually have quite a lot of regulation themselves to meet from the commission and their regulator called JAZAN. So they have to get that right. So it's quite a big process for the auditing bodies to review the reports. And that takes eight weeks before the commission even starts to look at it. Once the auditors give it over to, once the auditing body submits it to the commission, it then just starts the clock. Um, and I've seen audits go through in three months. But I've also, I have, I have a business that I've registered that we're at 20 months waiting for approval. Uh -huh. So it can be a really long time. And um, I've been, I've had every single client I've worked with almost say, you know, how do I get it through faster? And if I knew that I'd be a very rich woman. <laughs> I, I don't actually think there's rhyme or reason why some take longer than others. I think it depends on the state. Um, I know that the commission focuses on re-registering providers before new providers, because obviously making sure that currently registered, currently operating businesses are doing the right thing is, is a higher priority than brand new yes. ones. 
Um, so re-registration and midterm audits go through faster than than provisional or, or brand new businesses. But outside of that, I've had clients come with all these theories around, oh, it's this registration group takes longer or it's this or it's that. I really just think you go in a queue and it just is when yeah. your turn comes up next. Yeah, I could only imagine that at some point there's a lot of re-registrations happening, you know, midterm audits. And so that, that just fills out. And so everybody's waiting, just slips down the list a little bit further yeah. while that process happens. Yeah. Let's talk about the good news. Once you do get registered, yes. what does that look like? So it's kind of almost uneventful. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> like not like there is a ticker tape parade and you get, you know, a champagne bottle in the mail and unless you're one of my clients, then I do send them champagne when they get their certificates. Um, That's but a good the, plug right there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the commission simply sends you an email. First, actually, you get an email from Proda to say you have access to the portal. That's the first thing right. that happens. You get, say, before you even know you've been approved, you get an email saying, hey, you can go in as a provider now to the portal and set it up. Um, that's the first thing that always queues. Then you get your certificate emailed over to you from the from the commission. It'll have on there any conditions. Um, and so there's different conditions based on anything that happened at audit. Um, and that's it. You're then, then you have a registration number and you're a registered provider. Fantastic. As simple as that. As simple as, as, simple that. as that. Look, I'd love to just ask you a couple of questions around that, that I'm sure our listeners are, are curious about, especially if they're thinking about becoming registered or they're just sort of starting that process. How much does this whole process cost? Yeah. So, um, there's no cost to the application fee. So there's no application fee. I know in other sectors, like to be a my age care provider, there's a now a very big fee to putting in your application. But in the NGS, the application process itself is free. Obviously, if you pay a consultant, then that you know is a private arrangement. Um, but your audit costs start for a certified provider at about two thousand five hundred dollars on average. So that would be for one and a half audit days for provisional audit. Um, and I've seen them go up as far as $20,000, but obviously that it, that changes. Generally, um, generally it is about $2,000 an audit day per auditor. So if you've got two auditors on your, on your audit, you're looking at $4,000 or thereabouts for an audit. Um, generally, an audit will be anywhere between one and a half and two days. And then if you've got those additional modules, you can ha add half a day for any of those, which is why your audit fee is really impacted by those registration areas and registration groups you add. Um, and why I try to get people to add as little as possible the first time round, just focus on what their actual core business is, because, you know, adding a half an audit day is adding a thousand to $2,000 every additional module that you add. Um, for a verified provider, it starts at about $800 and goes up to $1,200 for the three-year period. Right. Yeah. So we talked about the wait period, but how long does it really take someone to actually get to the point of having their audit and having everything actually happen? Yeah. So generally I would see a provider would take a month to do their application and then they would wait two months till they can get in on average to see an auditor, anywhere between one and two months to see an auditor. So there you've already lost three months. And then the audit process itself will take between your stage one and your stage two is generally, um, it's a minimum of 10 days between stage one and stage two and a maximum of 90 days. So you can see the audit process itself take three months. And then if you fail, you get another three months till you have to go through an audit again. 
Yeah. Um, on average, if everything goes well, you're looking at between three and nine months to get through the audit process. And then you've got between nine months plus for the NGS Commission to do their side. So all up, you're looking at at a minimum nine months for the process mm-hmm. at a maximum two years. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, if you went into the process thinking, you know, 18 months, two years, then, you know, you can just get on with it and keep going rather than sitting there stressing about it. Verified providers are much easier because they're lower risk. So I see them coming through anywhere between three months and six months on average, nine months at at an extreme. But I guess the other thing is that you don't have to wait to operate as well. You can work as an unregistered provider during that period. You can't obviously claim from um, agency managed clients during that time and you can't uh, deliver behaviour supports, module two, or specialist disability accommodation, module five, while you're unregistered. But you can operate in every other space. And that's generally my suggestion is get out there and start marketing and operating as if you're registered because really you are, you're just waiting for that certificate to come through. Yeah, I've definitely had that conversation with a few providers who are, you know, say, oh, I don't want to start until I'm registered. But, you know, if you're starting a new business, you really need to understand who you're working with before you go through that process. Because obviously, if you know what you're registering for, it makes the process simpler and cheaper. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Um, if you are if you are going through the audit without any NGRS participants, your first audit is actually a little bit simpler, but it's almost a false economy because if you uh, if if I'm running a disability support uh, business and I go to audit as a provisional client or provisional provider, that means I have no participants. My audit is cheaper and quicker because I don't have any interviews of participants or interviews with staff. But as soon as you've been delivering services to staff or participants, you have another audit three months later called a service delivery audit where that does happen and you have to pay for another audit. So in some respects, it is better to operate as an unregistered provider for a little while, find your niche, prove your business model, and then go forwards with registration with what you know you're registering with, as long as you don't want to operate in the uh, behaviour supports or the SDA space. Yeah, fantastic. Is the audit process that much more of a hassle if you do have the participants? Like you just mentioned that if you have, um, you know, less participants or no participants, you have to go through that process later on. What would you recommend there? Yeah, it depends. It depends how eager you are to get going. Um, if and then how experienced you are in the sector. If you are green and brand new, it's probably an easier audit process for you to go through without participants because you don't know anything yet. And so it's understandable at audit that you don't know anything yet. Where if you wait to have participants to go through your audit, you'll have a full audit as opposed to a provisional audit. And your auditor is going to have higher expectations of you. Remembering that the NGRS standards are what they call proportionate. So they need to be applied differently to every provider based on the size and the scope of their operations. So if you don't have an operation, the benchmark is low. Where if you have five, 10 or so participants, the bar has been lifted for you. So you want to understand the sector before you go to audit in that space. Yeah. Um, and every audit gets increasingly more difficult because the proportionality has increased and the expectation is a little bit harder. So if you're really experienced and you've been a support worker your whole life and you're v- venturing into your, your first business, I would say 
go and be an unregistered provider, test the business model, and then become a provider when um, when you have enough cash flow to do it. Absolutely. But if you are green, you're moving from being a financial planner and you're moving into the NGIS space for the first time, I would say register green, go through while you're waiting for registration, learn those skills and then get ready for that second service delivery audit three months after service delivery so that you've got time to learn. And that would be the easier process. I think that's some great advice. Just really understanding where you're coming from and which situation is going to work best for you. Yes, absolutely. Another quick question. Why register? Mm. Yeah, so I am all for registered providers and I know that's pretty funny because I, you know, do audits and I ran the largest registration business in Australia. Um, But I really believe that registering gives you a level of professionalism. It's almost like a tick of approval. I think also I really believe that that participants are vulnerable and they need to be protected. And the legislation for me is a level of protection for participants. I also think there is a a whole lot of an undertide of unregistered providers that are getting away with things that they wouldn't as a registered provider. And I worry about what what that shapes the whole landscape. Coming from the vocational education sector where I ran an amazing business and so did many of my colleagues, but we all got tarred with the vet fee help funding brush. We all got made to feel like we were dodgy providers because a very small handful of providers did the wrong thing. I would hate for unregistered providers who don't have the same level of transparency to the government for a few of them to do the wrong thing and that tar the rest of the sector. So for me, it's a a security blanket. Um, I understand. I understand why there are unregistered providers. I understand that it's around choice and control for participants and I absolutely support that. I think it makes no sense for Jim's mowing to have to be a registered provider to, to, for someone to service the one participant in their area. I understand it's a demand-driven system and I support a demand-driven system. Um, I think it brings out the best in everyone in a demand-driven system. But I feel that there needs to be a level of accountability for unregistered providers if we're going to continue in this space. Or potentially we leave unregistered providers for only certain registration areas you know, I, I read a, a horrible uh, case study the other day as part of the Disability Royal Commission about a 20-year-old participant who was left to drown in the bath, mm. um, and that was a registered provider. But I can only imagine that if registered providers have to have policies and procedures in place, it minimises the risk. And so I'm all for that. As a provider, I think it sets you apart from the unregistered providers. It shows that you've made a commitment to your business. It shows that you value quality and compliance and you're doing all of these things to run the best business you can to provide the best level of support. Absolutely. And one last question that I I definitely hear a lot is, if I get registered, will I get clients? Well, I mean, I don't have an answer to that. I think my my gut response to that is you get participants by running a great business and by delivering supports that fit the needs of participants. And so if through the audit process, you're able to lift your quality by being demanded to have certain systems and processes in place, that should help you find, it should help you be person-centred enough to find that. You know, as part of the audit process, you need to do participant surveys, you need to look at your data, you need to make sure you're managing complaints and feedback. All of that has to be a positive thing. Um, it also ensures that you're 
reviewing your staff's performance, that you're doing regular performance reviews, that you're supervising your staff. And so your staff are the face of your business. They're out there delivering the service. If you then have to have an increased expectation of them, that can only be a positive thing. Not saying you can't have these things in an unregistered business. You absolutely can, but you're not having anyone critique it and enforce it. I think that being a registered provider has its advantages. Yeah, look, I think that that's a point that you've made there is that it's more about what you're providing and you're providing a really good service. You'll be connecting with clients. Getting registered doesn't mean you'll get clients automatically, but it does mean that you open yourself up to a whole new market of people that are obviously agency managed. Yes. And you are held to a higher standard. Yes. I, I think I think that's absolutely correct. I think also there are some tools um, like the the LACs. They can recommend or not recommend. They can refer to registered providers. I don't believe they refer to unregistered providers. Um, you also can use things like the NDIS portal, which is only for registered providers. You can come up as registered on their website. I don't know how much of that actually gets you clients. The, the clients that I see that are successful in gaining um, the providers that I see that are successful in gaining participants is because they've found their niche, they've identified how to serve a community, and they've done that really well. Whether they're unregistered or registered, then it just goes via word of mouth. And I think that that is the most sustainable way so that you're not paying for you know, marketing and you're, you're really just doing what you do the best you can for a very defined target market. I, um, I did a audit many years ago now for a plan manager, and this was when plan managers were actually certified, not verified, they changed. Um, and this plan manager had decided that she would serve the deaf community as a plan manager. And she looked at for different options and, and she had some staff that, um, that, that did Auslan and she developed her whole business model around it. So she, she went to their homes to do their meetings. She spoke in Auslan. She had her information printed in Braille. She had her documents in that area. And she had so many clients for a one-person business. She probably had oh, hundreds of participants yeah. and wait list. And she said that she went to get the participants. She went and networked with um, uh, a number of uh, organizations that worked with blind participants. I can't remember the names. And uh, she worked really closely with them. And she didn't have to pay for one cent of marketing ever. And then it was word of mouth. Other, other providers in her area were trying to also work in that market, but they weren't able to break in because they still had their own rigid business model of, well, you come to my office at this time in this date, where she was like, right, people who are blind find it hard to travel on public transport. They don't drive. So how do I make it simple and accessible for them? I go to them. Yeah. I come to their homes Fantastic. at a time that suits them in a mode of communication that suits them. And that ticks all the box from an auditing perspective, but from a a, a, a client-centered place, it you know, if I was that participant, you would feel comfortable with her and you would highly mm. recommend her to everyone that you knew in that community. Yeah, look, that really makes you stand out, knowing who you serve, what their needs are and meeting those needs. Yeah, it's as simple as that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's time to wrap up today's session. Um, thank you so much, Tanya, for dropping a lot of information, but really putting it in a way that people can really understand and uh, understand what's coming up next in their process of being registered. Yeah, absolutely. 
And next episode, I'm really looking forward to interviewing you, Paul. And we're going to keep talking about what we've just been talking about. How do I get more clients? Well, I love to use the term creating clients. Ah, I love it. Right. Awesome. So thank you very much, everybody. We'd love you to uh, follow along with our, our podcast and share it to anybody you think that might get some help out of this. And uh, please subscribe and follow us along next week. Yeah. And we'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast with Tanya Gomez and Paul Bryan. We hope you found today's episode informative and valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to subscribe, leave us a rating and share it with others who could benefit from our insights. Until next time, keep thriving.